This is Shaka Wart Speak. Yeah, so critiques. I don't, you know, I like to critique your clothes, Gareth. Can you, can I, you do that now? Yeah, I wish um, I wish that gray was a just a half shade higher, and uh, I wish there were some arm patches on your hoodie because I think that would make it look better, and I'd prefer it. Well, but, um, but here's the thing is the yeah. way I feel about this gray is yeah. uh, like my own feeling. Yeah, but it's making me feel uncomfortable. Um, I don't know if is, uh, but I think my feelings are more valid. Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's we're, we're going to have to just not be in the same space talking about it. We're just going to have to. Probably. Yeah. Um, I just wish the gray was a different color gray. You know, can we just can we just accept that? Um, I have more degrees than you. Well, I think no, I don't. You have. We have the same amount of degrees. So I guess we can't go there. You have either. a PhD though, so Doctor Snacksmell wins again. <laughs> bum, Dang bum, it! Bum. The PhD <laughs> always wins. That's right. And you drop Anyhow. the PhD hammer. But in all seriousness, critiques. We're going to talk about them today. There's that was our fake critique. <laughs> yeah. If that made you feel uncomfortable, it was supposed to. Because yeah, anybody do, else do hickey bit, darn heck a little bit of. Uh, uh, PTSD, like post-grad school PTSD. Post-grad school critique PTSD. Let's start. Let's, we're going to, so we're, I'm, what are we talking about today, Gareth? We're talking about critiques. We're talking about critiques. Yeah. And with a specific end, right? I mean, Hopefully. It's, uh, it's not just, uh, not to just kind of talk about our experiences with them, but you know, to actually, yeah. I don't know if I could say this, maybe even critique the critique. Yeah. Let's critterize the critique. That's kind of what it. I want to, I'm going to, I want to make up words today. So if you're with me, listen for any made-up words. We've been a part of this long enough. I mean, even just the the way that the Chicago Art Space even kind of started was yeah. with uh, these kind of open critiques on Friday nights. Yep. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of experience that we have with it. Uh, it's a it's part and parcel of what we do in our classrooms. Right. Um, so It's um, a big discussion. Uh, it's been a hotly desired, like, I, I guess the, uh, the impetus for this is, uh, you know, I've taught specialized crit classes Mm-hmm. at university and uh been intensely participating in that kind of mode of discussion uh surrounding the f- contemporary art yeah. um uh for a solid 15 18 years um in a solid solid way and uh i know that <clears throat> well it seems like there's a lot of continual desire and dissatisfaction with critiques so there's a what I keep finding is there's an extreme value and desire for the critique and an extreme dissatisfaction with it. Mm-hmm. And I've just been, you know, over the years trying to work through that and rack my brain. And I think, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. I think even the university, there's a lot of discussion on like how to, what this should look like. Is there alternative methods? I think part of the problem for me is that there's speculation on alternative methods, but the methods that are being employed, I don't think are understood very well either. So it's like you, yeah. you, you're you diagnosing a problem, a symptom of a problem without looking at the problem. And that's what I've been working at for years. And um, not saying I got, I, I know we always say this because we, we kind of tend to try to prescribe, but um, I don't fully have an answer to it. So I'm still working it out myself. But. I think it's also really valid because um, our experience with the gallery, um, I think some of the most um, enjoyed or appreciated maybe uh, things that I think the artists consistently talk about when we have shows is the the kind of continual sort of studio visits, right? right. And the studio visit is just a, a more professionalized critique. That's right. right? So it's, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that... Um, 
you know, it, it's just, it's, it's difficult because if you don't necessarily know, um, or it's difficult to understand or, or whatever it is, if it feels a bit amoebic, what something looks like being finished, mm-hmm. like it, it's, it's always helpful to have somebody that can kind of come in and check. And I think that's really, for me, that's the heart of how I understand critique. Sure. Um, you know, that we're, we're kind of moving, moving towards the betterment of the work and the artist in yeah. different ways. Um, and so uh, I think it's, it's one of those points that I think it's always valid to talk about. Yeah. I think that if you, if you get too comfortable and say, oh no, I, I get critiques, I right, understand how that right. works, then I don't know that you're being critical enough, period, mm-hmm. in a positive way. Yeah. So that may actually implicate your critiques as well. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think we want to jump into it. There's definitely a lot to cover. We may or may not get through all of it in this episode. I mean, I think we're kind of like, we're, we're going to kind of see, huh? we're going to see, we're going to, it's like, you know, uh, when you, you, I've been playing Legos with my kids lately. So it's like when you get the big box of Legos that just mm-hmm. is accumulated, you dump it out. You're not probably going to tech, you know, build with every piece. So to dump it all out is overwhelming, but then you kind of construct out of, out of that something solid. So, I feel like that's kind of what this feels like. It's like there's a lot of pieces and what we kind of bring forward will just be a fraction of probably what's there. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to get this conversation going. And I think it's going to be something where I'd love to, I, I just imagine us revisiting this conversation because it's so relevant, um, especially if you're alone in your studio. You know, like how do you how do you cultivate some of this for yourself? But also just what... What are some trappings? What are some maybe good thoughts to consider? Mm-hmm. Um, where does the cri- critique maybe come from? I think right. a lot of times that's not understood very well. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I was wondering if, if we should jump in. You can shoot this down, dude. I was wondering if we should, you know, do you have a, uh, um, you know, a couple anecdotal experience? Like maybe we throw a couple experiences out first. Like yeah, maybe, maybe it's like, hey, do you, but only if you have it, of course, you know, maybe, uh, what a, what a rewarding critique look like and what a, um, you know, maybe a disastrous one look like. You yeah. I think examples? that's a, I got a couple examples. I can go both ways of that. Um, so the first one, I think a rewarding critique, I was in this, um, this publication design course and it was, a uh, an advanced course in undergrad. So there were seniors and graduate students taking this course. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we were doing is we were, it was one of two courses. The first course we actually kind of uh, planned out like a business plan for a new publication mm-hmm. as like an entrepreneurial pursuit. And the second course we actually designed an entire issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a critique one day. We had kind of a pinup space on one wall. And we were each person, I think it was about 15 to 18 people in the class. We had to bring in three uh, cover variants mm-hmm. that we had designed. And so... Um, brought them in and what you start, what you see is you see this wall of about 50. And so uh, immediately with everything pinned up and these, you know, kind of eight and a half by 11 PDF print off things, you have about 50 of these things on the wall or more. And, um, you start to notice what everybody else is doing. So immediately there was a visual critique because you now had other points where you said, Oh, oh they actually did their, their type is better on the cover. I think that image is more appropriate. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the color, uh, editing and things are nicer here. Um, I think their, their logo is better. So you had a, a visual critique that was happened immediately because of just proximity, which was nice. 
but then the professor took the entire class to go through and at least one cover from each person he ripped to shreds. And that was really helpful because going through my mind at that point, I was doing everything because I was pretty much affirming myself and saying, oh, this is the right choice. This is the right choice because I was having the conversation with only myself Mm -hmm. and probably my preferences from other things I had seen. Oh, I like the way this does this and that does that. So when he got up there and started saying, well, this doesn't work for this reason and this isn't really helpful and this doesn't happen and these colors actually blur together and you get muddy over here and this isn't going to print well and all this sort of stuff. It just gave a viewpoint exterior of the work and the person doing the work that really just, I was like, wow, okay. And it was, I think it was that moment that I had a real shift in terms of how I started to view a lot of my work. Mm -hmm. It stopped being so like completely innately personal And it started having me ask a lot of other questions about what it looks like for people outside of my work to see it, to interact with it, to appreciate it, to want it, to hate it, whatever it was. Yeah. What about a, what about a dumpy one, dude? Yeah. Every dumpy critique I've ever been a part of has been exactly the same. Ah, do tell. And, And that's, I mean, I think the good critiques, they have different like kind of, you know, values of, of good or bad, you know, they, they rise and fall, but the bad ones all have the same characteristics, Uh at least for me. And the characteristics characteristics have been, nobody can actually talk about anything because everybody's just hedging their own bets. Mm -hmm. So they're saying things like, well, you know, I think I like, I think I like, I appreciate, I want, I want. And at the end I'm always asked, but what about the work? Like, what about what I did though? Like, it's cool that you like it, but I'd actually like for you to hate it so you could tell me a few things that yeah. would help me make it like better mm-hmm. or work harder mm-hmm. or be more interesting. You know, I, I, cause I, I've never gone into a critique feeling like, oh, well, this is done. Mm-hmm. Cause if I did, I wouldn't go to the critique. I would just say, I don't need this cause I've already finished. So most of the bad critiques I've been in have been, um, at the hands of, you know, when I was in school, the, the, the teachers that were kind of facilitating them uh, were just happy with it being like so subjective that it was a waste of everyone's time. That you left saying, well, I, I guess it's fine because three people liked it, so I don't need to change it, even though you feel like you need to. Like there's something like, I know it's not done, but I'm not, I, I don't want to just shoot into the dark and say, this needs to improve, or this isn't there, this isn't tight enough. So yeah, I feel like every bad critique was in that vein. Gotcha. Yeah, there's a, so already my mind's just popping off, because there's going to be a, I think there's some definite plot points that that are often are not spelled out. <clears throat> so, but I, I'm going to hold, I'm not going to go into it yet. Um, you know, you know, for me, a good, you know, there's different, le- there's different seasons of, uh, critical discussion around what you do. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, two good ones that kind of set me off in the trajectory that I'm on now. One was, um, and I may have shared this in a previous podcast, but just to, just for context sake, sorry, I'm, I'm going to maybe sneeze. It's about that time. I normally have a sneeze every episode, whether you all hear it or not, we might tune it out. Um, but, you know, when I went to CSU Sacramento, I had a professor named Linda Day and she, I had made this, I, had, I hadn't been painting for over a year because I had to go 
take a bunch of units to get myself together to go back to university. I, I was at a community college. And so I was excited because I'd made this big painting and it was in process. And, um, you know, it was maybe the most solid thing to that point I'd ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it wasn't done, but I had, it was also just a personal relief to me to be painting. It's almost like I, I had um, answered a question because I was worried, like, what if I can't do this anymore? Like, and I only knew what I knew. I didn't, I wasn't, you know, grand pictures. I wasn't a very good painter. So when I say it was the best thing I've made, it's just what it was, you know. And uh, relative to the class, it might have been an intermediate or beginning painting class. I can't remember. But it was the most ambitious, completed thing in the room. Mm-hmm. So my expectation was I was going to get heavy affirmation. Mm. So she's moving around the room critiquing people. She's really breaking things down and uh, she gets to me and I'm like, I'm going to have an easier go with this one. And I, and so I thought, I thought I needed the affirmation. That's what I thought. So she goes in on this, this painting and she just does quite the opposite. And I'd never experienced that before. And uh, I mean, before you know it, I got tears in my eyes because I'm like, one, I don't understand a lot of what she's saying. Yeah. So the terminology, and uh, I took it very personally. It felt like she was angry at me. Mm-hmm. So at the expense of my personal feeling of like, okay, maybe I've, you know, done something here. Uh, it is, I'm I'm getting completely the opposite feedback. So that ended, and I didn't know what to make of it. I went home and called my mom. I said, I don't know if I belong here. I, I think they speak a different language. And uh, my best effort just got ripped more than anybody else. And it seems like I had a lot more work done. It was more ambitious, more personal. And so I slept on it, slept on it. And uh, and then it occurred to me, like like a little voice was like, that's actually what you've been waiting for. Because you've only ever gotten people to say, well, you're pretty good. You know, and yeah. um, no one's ever been brave enough or capable enough to tell you what's wrong. Never had that in high school, really, um, in community college. So um, it was like a seminal moment where I decided that maybe I should lean into this. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should pursue this professor. If if they're willing to be that brass with me in the front end, then they, they're going to at least be as, tr- they're going to be truthful, you know, at a minimum, if mm-hmm. not mean, right? right. Um, and not that I wanted to be arbitrarily tore down, but they were saying specific things. It wasn't just like, you know, I don't like it. It wasn't that kind of conversation. Right. So I found her. She's out back of our art fab building, fine arts building, smoking a cigarette. And uh, I said, um, explain to her what my experience was of her critique. And I said, told her, my feeling is you can teach me because you don't seem to be worried about my feelings. Hmm. And would you be willing to do an independent study with me? And I will not cry or defend myself. I just want to learn. And she looked at me and she was like, absolutely. And that set me off on course. Okay. So I started doing this independent study work with her. And before you know it, I'm not making one painting. I'm making, you know, all these collages that I had, I've talked about in the past, like that was filling up my house with. 
and I uh, brought those back the following semester and uh, she was really excited about them and we distilled them down. I started making these other pieces and at CSU Sacramento, you know, you, there was a, uh, what they called open critiques. And so open critiques were, uh, I don't know, 14 hour days with half hour blocks with a little space in between for D install and install. And you signed up and all the faculty showed up at different times. So you'd have mm-hmm. any number of teachers there and you bring your work up and they would go to town on you. So it was a big deal at the time. You know, it felt like a lot of pressure. And um, so Linda encouraged me to get some eyes on this work because she's like, I think there's a lot of possibility here. I was doing these collage paintings on corkboard. I was finding at thrift stores. I completely started making new choices from working with her and it expanded what I was doing. It changed the energy and the ideas. And I found that I was capable of making more when I worked on more. So it's a big, already a big impact. And so, um, so I, uh, install this work and Oliver Jackson had been on retirement, kind of like a interim retirement. And he, he was coming back for his final year mm-hmm. or final two years. And, uh, he, you know, he's, he's a tough, tough person and intimidates everybody, including Linda, who was intimidating, you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, and Linda was newly there. She's only there for maybe a year or two before. So I hang up all this work and, uh, all this faculty are here and I'm looking at these pieces the way, so the way I'm looking at these pieces is these are not singular pieces that are meant to say everything. And I, the way I describe them is this work works together like words comprising a sentence or sentences comprising a paragraph Mm -hmm. so that the parts together communicate a whole. That's how, you know, in my own way, that's how I was thinking about them. And so, um, Oliver Jackson shows up and everybody is tense. Like, no one expected him to show up. It was very rare because he, you know, he didn't give his time to things that he didn't think were important. So he shows up, changes the whole room. Everybody shuts down and Linda's like, looks at me like, oh crap. <laughs> and so Oliver's like, so tell me about these, you know, and he's got a grin on his face and you could, you're like, I have only heard about him. I didn't even know what he looked like. I've only heard Oliver, Oliver. So I'm like sweating bullets. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started talking about it and I tell him my deal and he goes, I think you're selling these things short. Hmm. And he goes, do you know what that one's doing over there? And they started laughing. He's like, you don't know, do you? And I'd say, well, it was a piece that says my kingdom crumbles. It was like, like I had written some words on there. There, (laughs) It was really bad. It's kind of a cool piece, but it sounds terrible when I talk about it. So Mm -hmm. if I talk about it, I tell you like, it was like this whole flip on like just vulnerability and like, you know, the only throne I sit on was like a toilet bowl. That was the whole idea. I was young. I was like, but the thing was I, I, I scratched out the words crumble and they recessed into the cork board. And so then the word itself was literally crumbling. But the effect was that that was emerging forward. And then the lettering that said my kingdom was sinking back. And so there was a figure ground flip mm-hmm. and then the frame was doing its thing. And so there was some nuance there and uh, I had some instincts. And so he starts talking about that. And as he continues to talk about him, Linda looks at me and goes, this is really good. Like she, everyone's <laughs> got like this like tweak look and he didn't critique me harshly, but he described things that I couldn't see and didn't realize were happening that I was doing. Mm-hmm. 
and then it ended and he goes, um, I just thanked him. And he said, um, <laughs> no joke, like force awakens. You need a teacher. He goes, um, you might be a real painter. You just need training. And he walked out. Dang, what a mic drop. Yeah. And so I immediately, <laughs> immediately roll, enrolled in his class. Yeah. I mean, immediately. And that kicked that off. So those were, and then that landed me with someone that helped me really develop and refine after Oliver, which was Tom Monteith. And so Linda was great enough to pass me off at times when she couldn't help me. And um, it created this community of discourse that was really there to help me develop as a, as a maker. And so I had mm-hmm. these other people like Brenda Louie and um, these different people that had different aspects to teach, but they didn't hold on to their preferences so hard that they didn't push me around. Now in the reverse, I also had the negative critique, which will bleed into maybe discussion today. And there were some people that did. And so when I was in graduate school there, I had grown in stature. I had a reputation by this point and I had another professor, I won't name his name. Um, but he, uh, I had departed from the school's value as far as what a painting should look like, as far as he was comfortable with as a ceramic artist. And so in grad critiques there, you know, you got 24 faculty in there. You got an hour and a half to defend your work. It's in a mm-hmm. big, big room. And, um, you know, I've shared this story many times, but he, uh, you know, he jumps right in cause he wants to be the center of attention. And he, um, tells me that when he looks at my work, he can't tell what I love. He doesn't see love in the work. And so I said, you know, well, um, what do you mean by love? And which kind of love? Because there's a lot of different senses of that, what that means. And how is it that a painting that you've never seen before should encode in one way or another uh, a way of discerning love? Like, why is that the point of discussion for this? How is it, how can you ever detect it in a painting? And what do you mean by that? And um, I'm just in grad school at this point, first year, and I had made radically new work. I had come back from a trip to New York and it changed my life. And I, I realized I'm going to give myself license to make my paintings the work I want to make, which ended up being the work that got me into a lot of MFA. So it's like my instincts were correct, but I wasn't making um, old school abstract expressionism the way that he was comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the room is tense because they think that, I think what he's used to is saying that and having the authority that he has, he's able to say that and then watch the student grovel, you know? And they also felt like I was betraying them a little bit because they, they thought I was going to be this poster child for certain values that Mm -hmm. hilariously enough, had I have stayed with, I wouldn't have gotten to grad school anywhere else for my MFA. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's really true. So because I've seen other people that stayed that way and they didn't get into school. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, this demanded a real discussion about stuff that he didn't have a language for yet. And he was unwilling to step outside of himself because what he was used to was the power of his position and personal preference. So charitably, if you ask the follow-up question, you're giving the professor or the, the critiquer the chance to clarify. So maybe he had some insight that would be beneficial to me. So I was sincerely looking for it. He took offense to it because he had no other follow-through. All he wanted to do was tear it down based on the fact that he didn't like it. And the best he could do was to say he couldn't see what I loved. And so I stood up to him philosophically and it destroyed the critique. Uh, There was none because it was just an awkward social tension around um, me trying to talk about my work and him hemming and hawing being pissed. And then that turned into him attacking me later in my final year to try to get me failed 
uh, out of CSU Sacramento, which was hilarious. Sa- same deal. Mm-hmm. And so I've experienced the knowledgeable person being able to lay aside personal preferences, talk directly about the work almost in an objective way, which opened up an invitation to say, you need help, mm-hmm. but you also might be. And then I've experienced the other, which is I have developed my status and I, I get to just say what I like. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, I see a lot more of that kind of critique happening in academia. It's resting on the power of the person in the room who has the most attractional weight or societal weight. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the work or the artist. It's about the opinion of that person. And it creates an asymmetry in the room that actually isn't in the service of the artist at all. Um, and, and, and so when it comes to talking about uh, very, very current and contemporary issues, that mode is insufficient. Because what are you going to say? If someone's making work about their identity, what are you going to do? Critique the work and then critique their identity? You, you, you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It's, yeah. it's, you can't do that. Right. Uh, it's not your place. Um, uh, that's not the world we live in. You know? So the question is, is there another way of talking about it? I think the answer is yes, but it, it requires you to learn and, and it requires, I think, a shift in how we um, understand the world uh, is more than merely subjective. But anyhow, I mean, so that's kind of like, yeah, those are seminal moments for me, man. They really did shape why it is that I, I mean, I went through some, I've been tore down in critiques in ways that are, you know, that same, that same professor hit one of my paintings and said it was, he dropped the F bomb and said my work was dead in my final review. And so I've received, I've, I have received the most venomous kinds of critiques, stuff that I think our current, current culture couldn't comprehend, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. You know, and I know like the school, Yale, I think if you go back in time and you talk to people that studied at Yale in the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. they have some stories about the way you were almost hazed. It's like a rite of passage. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, I got, I got some thoughts, but one of the questions should be like, where, how did we get here? And what are some of the things that landed us here in, in how institutional critique happens? Oh, you know, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, several things that kind of crossed my mind with what you were saying is um, it, it's it's interesting that we, uh, as artists and designers, we we desire for our work to be something that can live uh, in perpetual conversation with its viewers, mm-hmm. um, but but we kind of stunt that conversation as we're making it. Right. You know? So with with this kind of critique you're describing, where it's you know heavily emotive um, and very subjective, um, we're not interested in the conversation. You know, yeah, it's just, not a dialogue. You know, there's no dialogue yeah. happening there. But but then once we hang it on the wall, once we place it on the dais, once we, you know, have it on display in the frame, whatever it is, um, we want that dialogue to be there. Right. But we haven't we haven't actually like done that in the in the work itself, right. or we or we've avoided it because it's a little bit more comfortable. So that you know that's an interesting point for me uh, that I think of with what you're talking about. Yeah, that's good. Um, also think about the. Uh, you know, the fact that, uh, honestly, it's just easier to be emotive. Yeah. It's just easier. Well, it's um, easier to be emotive and it's easier to tear down. It's easier to, it's easier to pick something apart arbitrarily than it is actually offer solutions. Yes. I mean, it's, and, and it's. Tearing down is easier than building up. Right. I mean, if we talk about, um, you know, this is something that always, uh, 
I felt like I heard a lot coming through like middle school and high school um, as we were doing things dealing with like, you know, kind of career planning or something. We always talked heavily about constructive criticism and how you should seek out people that can constructively criticize what you do. Um, and I don't feel like that's, I mean, that feels like at the core, like constructive criticism feels at the core of what a critique is. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it isn't like you're describing uh, with kind of, uh, this one professor where they're just like destroying the work and just saying things because, you know, you might say even at the time between the positive and the negative critique experience you described, your feelings may have been the same. Sure. Right. But, but what was the point of you feeling that way? Right. They had different, different trajectories that they were going. One was strictly to destroy. The other was to generate. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I, I share, like similar, um, you know, that experience I told you with the, the wall full of, of magazine covers that it didn't feel fantastic to be in front of, you know, other people, some of them upperclassmen, some of them grad students who, um, were hearing this professor just dog your work. Sure. But the thing about it is he was able to, uh, separate the work from the person in such a way that was, uh, extremely helpful. And he also became, I mean, he's, um, one of my, the, the dearest colleagues I've ever had in my life. Mm -hmm. And he is, uh, also was one of the most caring professors I ever had. Yeah. And and it came through not because he just wanted to make me feel okay, Mm -hmm. but because he wanted to actually make my work better Mm -hmm. so that I could be more independent as a maker, uh, that I could be more confident as a maker. Right. Um, and that wasn't going to happen by him just saying, yeah, it's good. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of give a lip service to the work. Um, and I think even even in our discussion, you know, there's a lines of difference in terms of uh, the enculturation of critical discourse, you know, when you broadly think about it in terms of studio art, contemporary art, and, um, you know, design disciplines or oh, yeah. craft disciplines. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's great nuance and uh, variation. I think there's large trending historical themes that frame sort of the flavor of discussion or, or the profile of discussion. Oh yeah. Um, and there's a historical flow to, to how, uh, the discussion has happened. You know, there, there's, um, critique, you know, if I could think of a couple of ways that I think we think about the function of critique, one is you're critiquing an art, you're, you're critiquing an artist past tense. In other words, you're, you're looking at their, uh, preemptive indicative tendencies in their work, broadly mm-hmm. speaking. And then you're trying to help them uh, assess those and in, uh, in order to grow, but growth is always with an eye towards a target. Mm-hmm. And so to employ new strategies for developing, developing areas of weakness that relate to desire, you know, so I desire to be this kind of maker and therefore here's these things where I'm weaker. How do I, what can I do to grow here in order to achieve some goal of, of de- development? And then you have the process critique of a given work. So you're looking at something and you're evaluating it in process. It's not done yet. I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not looking at it as a finished thing, but I'm looking at it in process and, and checking to see how it's going. Give some feedback to enhance the artist's eyes towards de- finishing it out in some kind of way. And then you have your... Uh, finished product um, where you're looking at it and you're saying it's done. How do you, what do you think? You know, I want to hear 
and in some ways it's a, a vague desire to see if it achieves some level of success, I guess is one mm-hmm. way of saying it. There's many ways you could say that. Um, what I've found is sometimes that's not even clear to people anymore what what they're asking mm. and when they're asking for it. They, they, act, they just kind of land you with, well, what do you think? And I think it's a dangerous question to subject yourself to if you're not prepared to receive what another person thinks. If you're not clear, you can't expect to get clarity. Like if you're not statedly clear, then you can't expect to get stated answers. And I think there's a embedded assumption in there where I think the person tries to, it's like the work should speak for itself notion and the idea that I don't want this to be a contrived interaction, which I understand you don't want contrivance. You really, you are looking for authenticity mm-hmm. and it seems harder and harder to come by. So we try ways to make, we try to find ways to make an authentic interaction occur. Um, sometimes to the detriment of, of um, like we actually need to go, well, it's, it's because we need to go back and rethink what we mean by authentic, you know? And so there's these factors that I think contribute to uh, the dissatisfying levels of outcome when it comes to critical discourse or anything. I mean, there's like critical reviews of shows, mm-hmm. um, which are almost not critical anymore. They're almost, um, you know, if a critic writes something, it's almost a given that they're a cheerleader. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it seems more descriptive than when I read like Clement Greenberg stuff. 100%. And so the idea, you know, the idea, well, so, oh my gosh. Yeah, how do you, it's almost like you got to get didactic a little bit and go backwards um, and talk about how we got here. You know, for anybody who wants to really rethink the critique, mm-hmm. I think you got to kind of get back into, well, how did we get here? You know, um, well, how, how far back, how far back do you want to go for that? I mean, where do you, where do you think a good kind of, uh, opening point for that discussion is? I, I have a general idea. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, What's your general idea? My general idea is really like that the critique is founded in the very, uh, intimate relationship of master and apprentice. Okay. I mean, I, th- yeah. So I think, all right. So if we say lowercase critique, I think it's there Okay. in an organic way, an originating way. So like when you think about guilds, yeah, yeah, definitely. Gotcha. The uppercase critique is maybe in the late 1800s. Okay. Maybe. Okay. Like, uh, maybe even like a, you know, like a French philosopher or like, like a utopic literature or utopic ideas, ideals. Yeah. I mean like that would have been, yep. 1850, 1815. The idea of utopia comes about with, uh, Name escapes me right now. Yeah. But he wrote a book about utopia. Yeah, there's like, I think it's like, I can't remember if it's like a guy named Frederick Ferrer. Ferrer, I can't say it's a French name, but um, the idea of the critique in the, okay, so if I could, if we could talk about it in terms of, um, let's hold, let's hold pause on the apprentice thing for a second. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, that's where I want to go to, but, um, that's, I think that's going to be relevant on the back end. Mm -hmm. So maybe you, 
I think utopia has contributed to the problems of the way we understand critique now. Okay, well, quick fact check. Yep. Thomas More, 16th century, a couple hundred years off. Yeah. Wrote the book Utopia. Utopia. And so, but there's a guy named Frederick, oh gosh, F Frederick Ferrer, who popularized, I believe, the critique when it comes to uh, utopia as it relates to making art, mm -hmm. I, I believe. I'm being stubborn. I think I'd have to check. Um, I wish I could say his fellow's name now. My brain is escaping me. Anyhow, sorry, listeners, but we're, we're, um, this is the way conversations this go. Is, yeah, this is what, <laughs> so, so, um, I'll come back and we'll, we'll fact check it. But, um, the point is that, uh, you have a lot of converging factors, right? Mm -hmm. So you have enlightenment, uh, empirical reasoning coming into play. You have uh, a view towards the sciences as a means for um, advancing society. And you certainly have different senses of what modernism is going to be for us between like the sciences and the arts. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't perfectly lock and step with each other. Um, uh, and so, you know, if we think about utopia as a perfect stasis or perfect state, mm -hmm. uh, you know, perfection meaning no lack. So everybody has sufficiently what they need. Everything is literally peak perfect, optimal, and that, that brings about the greatest and higher good, mm -hmm. like the greatest good possible for humanity. Like that, that's the aspiration in the most broad general sense. And so then the philosophical underpinnings that shape discourse become galvanized by this end. So like that end is motivating the discussion and the discussion starts to break down into the parts that relate to culture making. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you start to get people that are like, um, it's, it's really just like, uh, uh, because we don't live in a perfect place yet, everything must do better, be better. That's progress. So mm -hmm. we have to progress. And so, uh, until we land in a state of perfect forms, perfect expressions that uh, usher in and bring about this utopic reality, you know? I mean, that, that feels pretty heavy. Yeah. That's honestly. a lot of pressure. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Of course, you know, of course, though, when you say it that way in past tense, um, it feels heavy, but in present tense, it's purposeful in many ways. And, uh, you know, you can imagine at a time when information doesn't travel the same way, uh, these are like little fires kicking off in people's hearts as they're getting a hold of literature and reading and mm -hmm. going to going to learn you know higher learning institutions as those are emerging, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, there's something larger than the farm or you know uh, yeah. the family business that kind of thing, and so the industrial revolution kicks in, you know, and then and then you think like the failure of this sort of um, heightened in, in World War II. Mm -hmm. And so you have, um, you know, in Europe you have guilds. The history of art is very deep and long, right? Oh, yeah. And so you have guilds and apprenticing mm -hmm. and academies. But in, in the West or in America, you have military folks that go to war. They see horrific things and they want a different life. They want a, they want a version of utopia in response to what they've seen in war. 
And so they come back and they don't want to capitulate a European model of the academy. And so they infuse utopic ambitions and critical discourse with uh, a militaristic understanding and approach. So you get this kind of uh, boot camp style academic art department mode happening in university. The first graduate programs, the first art programs had, you know, a lot of artists came back from the war and be, and there were drill sergeants and they came back and started art schools. Mm -hmm. And so now there's a tone that is derived from the way people worked regimentally in the military has been infused into the classroom. They're cultivating a new learning environment. And uh, with trace elements of this utopic forward thinking progress, we got to get away from this war. We need to have white picket fences. We need to have, you know, uh, our best life now kind of thing. Yeah. You know? And so in it, be, there's a tone institutionalized. Uh, and if you think about the worst of what you've heard of boot camps, tearing people down to rebuild them, mm-hmm. uh, uh, is a part of the equation. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's never enough. We got to tear you down and rebuild you so you can be better and ready for the future kind of thing. And that's there, you know, like that's, that's a part of the discussion. Um, and it's a way to compensate for, I think the way American values at the time looked poorly on the arts in Europe, they saw it as, uh, uh, decadent. Uh, they didn't see it fitting well into a, uh, overly, uh, machismo kind of like male centric picture of the industrial revolution and like Mm -hmm. the working man and, you know, we're doing the real work kind of thing, you know? So this, this way of buffering that creates this tension we gotta we gotta compensate for our interest in poetry and art and philosophy, these things that music and high culture, if you will, that are not valued very well in America. And so we're gonna we're gonna be as regimental as the working man and uh, of the forties and fifties. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. like that's the that's sort of the re, that's sort of the for me, that's like the the um, epicenter of our arts it's sort of culminative of what had preceded that it, it, you know, it, it um, distilled some of that impre- apprenticing aspect and brought it into a more regimented academic environment. And then that became populated across universities in a way that almost normalized something. So normalize it across the whole. So it set a standard that then became the reactive ground of what followed. So you, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to go with next is that, you know, hearing this, then it makes total sense. Because um, if we look at human history, I think we're very good at uh, exerting so much force on the pendulum of history that it only veers into the other, right. other error. Right. right. And so if we if we have something like this, and, and if, you're, if you're sitting there listening, you kind of feel like you're kind of cringing at that and be like, oh, that sounds really horrible. Well, right. it probably was in some ways. Yeah. It probably, you know, there are probably a lot of abuses that happened yeah. in that and ways that were over you know, overdone a little bit more aggressive than they probably needed to be. And so instead of, you know, uh, course correcting, like we, we do a, a A pendulum, a pendulum. And of course, so the even, even harder part is, um, you know, there were a lot of, so, you know, in a male dominated world, there were a lot of men that were, you know, I'm, I'm talking purely descriptively here, historical descriptive, so not my opinion, this is just what, what I've read and what I've learned, is you had a lot of men that were depressed because 
at a time very different than our own, you know, uh, you would have can be cons- been considered effeminate or, uh, if you were interested in art and poetry. And, and mm-hmm. so you had a lot of men compensating for that social critique through, um, like their dress. That's why the whole, they almost became more, uh, much, you know, what do you call it? Misogynistic mm-hmm. and a, an over mirroring of the culture to hide their interests mm-hmm. um, because there wasn't a value for it. And, and in a lot of ways there still isn't for a lot of, a lot of folks like they still don't really see the value in it, but and I'm not excusing. I'm just saying this is what happened. And so it in there though, at the same time, you know, I've always wrestled with this cause I'm like, we wouldn't be here and getting MFAs and doing all this work if somebody didn't start this coming yeah. out of world war two. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of milit- it's, it's really interesting how many, I mean, even in Hollywood, you had a lot of actors that like Jimmy Stewart was like a war hero, mm-hmm. airplane pilot and yeah. uh yeah, in the air force. And then he was literally having PTSD when he made, um, it's a wonderful life. Like that wasn't acting. Right. You know, so it's really interesting to dig deeper into our origins in the most recent sense because in America, because we, you know, we're largely a new, a new place, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And so a lot of stuff is not that far behind us. And so, um, you know, you, you, you can't say it was all, you, uh, you know, somebody might try to say, well, it's not all bad. Well, another way of saying it is like, it's not, it wasn't all ineffective, you right. know, as way I, maybe I would put it, but, um, the strong bootstrapping in attempt to solidify some kind of universal ideals that were divorced from a historical context in the modern era created a reactionary uh, response, dogmatically so, or a, you know, a, a, almost a mirroring of dogma. And in, in you get, um, you know, your performance art and your fluxus movement, and you get like a lot of those things. And the critique changes because the forms change. And now longer, no longer, and I'm not saying this is bad. I'm glad this happened. There's no, no longer one way of doing it. Um, you know, the, the, uh, therefore the critique has to change to accommodate changing ideologies. So you see a diversification of discussion as opposed to a Clement Greenberg saying, this is the only way a painting exists. Mm-hmm. It has these constitutive properties and everything else is eliminated and you're not a real artist if you don't do this. Yeah. You know, it's like all of a sudden sculpture can be sculpture now and performance art can be performance art. And we start to work with new materials and then you, you know, and then you get into, um, I mean, I also just want to say that somewhere in the back of this discussion, it's really important to talk about the influence of existential philosophy. So in addition to utopia, which assumes progress, um, which is funny because you have to know where you're headed to progress. Right. Uh, so it's worth, worth thinking about that. Cause I, in some ways, I don't know if we progress, we may develop. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other discussion. But the other one is, in existential philosophy, the whole idea is, is Camus is like that there is no God. There's no, there's no nothing greater than us. There's no meta narrative. Um, there's just your ability to, in, in a way that's like the odds are so against you because it's all chaos that uh, the best you can do is some self-authenticating act. And you won't know it until you do it. And after you do it, you won't be able to talk about it, but you'll know. And uh, I think that's why the suicide rate was really high for artists and the in the alcohol alcoholism and these kinds of things in the forties and fifties, just because they were living out the implications of the incongruency between existential philosophy 
in modern progressive utopic ambitions. Mm-hmm. And uh, those were those were those were actually irreconcilable in a certain kind of way. If you're really, really, really holding true to the core tenets of each, they 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 look like they complement each other on the surface, and they do for a few layers. But the the further you dig down, the harder it is to justify both. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it seems. I'm just thinking about this in terms of um, my experiences in my career, and it seems very much like uh, you know, like if if, if I buy in wholeheartedly to uh, utopianism and then uh, I am swimming in a stream of, of uh, you know, existential kind of cultural narrative. Um, neither of those things have helped me at all in my career. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that I think about is like, I, I've never experienced those helping me make better work. I've never experienced either of those making me feel, feel more fulfilled in my work. Right. You know, like that, they, they haven't been a part of it, but it seems like they have done a good job sort of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, eroding the ability to have the conversation. A hundred percent. And that's, that is money because, and that's what you get. That's where you get the idea of the work should speak for itself Yeah, because you can't transfer an, okay. So on the one hand you're progressing somewhere, right? But if that is not a translatable communication, meaning everyone exists in isolate, like it's like Giacometti, the, the isolated sculpture, the, the isolated figure, the individual uh, facing out, you know, the, you know, the, the cosmos, you know, and it's bleak despair. Um, then, then you can't talk about it. And so to not talk about it is to confer that only the work can talk and each of you can have your own experience with the work. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's a Mickey because you're like, well, I can't talk about my experience with it because mine and who can say because um, a truly self-authenticating action, some kind of sublime encounter with the, the vast nothing uh, leaves me saying all you can do is have your experience when you do. And so to talk about the work we make with the, the pressure or expectation like Rothko, like that they're somehow going to bring that forward for you. Mm-hmm. I can't talk about it because to talk about it would deny you access to it. I'd be mm-hmm. buffering. I'd be mediating. And so already the seeds of erosion are there in how we discourse around the arts as it relates to a larger matrix, a nuanceful matrix that is the whole of, you know, human culture making, you know, at any given time, including the modern era, if you will. And so um, then you start creating dialogical constructs that try to deconstruct that issue, you know, and so you get, you even get your postmodern philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, it's like, uh, it's like there, you know, it's like going further and saying there is no meta narrative. Um, and we are allowed to create dialogical frameworks around whatever we do. Um, and therefore we need to be, uh, not unaware, but self-aware, self-critical. And, you know, one of the byproducts of, um, the modern era in, in trying to hold intention, uh, this existential philosophy and this utopic philosophy is you had a lot of artists that propagated the idea that there was, there was, um, that they were, you know, uh, driving things forward, you know, Pollock or de Kooning or, um, 
And so they're driving things forward, but they're not able to talk about it per se. But mm-hmm. they do talk about it. See, it's weird. It's like there is the the water cooler shop talk version of of uh, apprenticing. You know, oh, you made you did it. You made that painting. Look at those moves. Like there's this sort of uh, sub level descriptive discussion happening, and. Uh, the hilarity is there's still demands on how you construct a picture plane and it's deconstructive, but it's deconstructive construction with pressure to be ultimate and satisfying for everyone. So postmodernism starts to say you're uncritical of all the problems that are laden with that and we need to critique that so that we can avoid capitulating the problems that that we're facing. We can't keep capitulating this problem, so we need to go back and become more self-aware, not less. And so you start to get that uh, in the 60s and going forward, and it becomes a critique of the critique. And, um, you know, if I could push it forward, you go through your sort of 80s neo-expressionism, and then you get into post-philosophy. And so by the 90s, you're, you're really talking about critical theory, mm-hmm. you know, um, like full-bloom critical theory. It's, it's commentary on the past in many ways. It's not forward momentum any longer because that would be, that would be utopic. It's... Uh, burrowing down deeper into um, idiosyncratic critical theory surrounding uh, particular niche cultural em- emergences, if you will, like things that are emerging, mm-hmm. you know, any number of isms, if you will, even the end of isms in some ways, right? Yeah. And so um, then you move into the early 2000s and um, we are firmly in a relativistic value system with trace elements of all of this these different aspects of history. So we want demanding critiques. We want to be tore down like in the military, but we don't know that it comes from there. Mm-hmm. Um, we still say things like the work should speak for itself in a studio art context. Um, but there's an elusivity to discourse and we, we know that there is uh, a lot of discussion because of critical theory and there's a high value assigned to the intellectualism of that critical theory so we want the benefits of that high high value intellectualism bestowed upon our work and ourselves, but um, we also don't want any standard to violate our personal freedom to make what we want to make. So it's another way of talking about a fracturing that has landed us with a loss of a loss of objectivity in place of like a mystical irreconcilable state where you're satisfied and this work that no one's seen before is somehow going to perfectly communicate to everyone in a flawless way. Yeah. I mean, it's just impossible. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm even making sense, I don't even know if I mean, like, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very, you know, I'm speaking in gross terms, broadly speaking, this may not account for everybody's experience all the time, you know, and I'm leaving out a lot of historical information and, you know, I'm, trying to generalize here enough to, to get an idea of a dynamic flow rather than just like st- static assumptions. We got to this place for specific reasons. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't just, uh, we haven't just always been here. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's part of the problem too, is a lot of folks, it's unchecked assumptions and um, that are very, very incongruent with each other, unclear and, and can't be satisfied in that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and also the loss of objectivity means that the grounds, like, you know, Warhol, Warhol's my favorite for this is 
your modernist painters were putting all the pressure on the work mm-hmm. and they were receiving status. You know, they were like, they were heroes, rock stars, but, but the work was really the thing in their minds. That was the goal. They're not, they were just like shamans. Uh, in a lot, there was a shamanistic drift in your modernist painters. Yeah. They just could point you to the gateway forward, the whole break on through to the other side kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Warhol was great in saying like, there's some BS in that and uh, I'll show it to you. You know, I'll just throw a Brillo box out there mm-hmm. and uh, I'll be as shallow as the work to where, you know, I'm almost the work myself kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was masterful at deconstructing that stuff in a way. So I think he's more brilliant sometimes than he gets credit for, for, for other reasons, intellectually speaking. And so um, he made himself as flat as a Brillo box and sure enough, people reacted to him as much as a Brillo box and he became aestheticized. He became kind of the grounds for meaning mm-hmm. the person. So now the grounds is the artist, not the art per se. And so when you go to the eighties, you got a lot of art stars. So art stars really, really shot to the forefront and gallery systems thrived by putting forward the next big thing. Mm-hmm. John Michel Basquiat. I mean, you just Julian Schnabel, David Sally. Eric Fischel, like all, I mean, um, Jessica Stockholm, like all these, there's just all these different people that, um, you know, were making at this time. Um, and then the reaction to that is when the market fell out, then all the rock stars fell from the sky and you had this emergence of, uh, artists that were outside of that, that started to do some resilient things, some really interesting work. Mm -hmm. Um, and it became a little more tribal ish in a way you know, enclaves of culture happening that had its own codes and conducts. And, and so, um, but we, we are living in a place where the average person tends to feel like they're the grounds for the work now. Mm-hmm. You know, these are trickle down effects you know, passed down. And, uh, and so that there is no objectivity to the work because it's all subjective feeling. And so it becomes the art of discussion, but, in an expedient culture, the art of discussion requires time and investment that people don't want to make, you know? So there's like a dumbing down happening in some ways and an impatience with inquiry, dialogue, investigation. And so, uh, there becomes a pressure to be right. No one wants to say the wrong thing. I mean, it's a total implosion. I mean, I, maybe I'm being too, but you really see this, struggle for a reason. And so then when people leave school and they go in their studios, they do not know how to think about their work. They think about it in impressions and feelings, uh, which are not bad. They're just not everything, mm-hmm. you know, they're left with less than they need to have a thriving practice many times. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if this derails a few things. I hope it doesn't, but like, as you're talking, I'm thinking about other places, like other, other areas of life, uh, beyond the arts as we're speaking about sure. where something like critique is, is very normalized. Yeah. Like it is with the arts where it's understood it's part and parcel of what it is. Um, and in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, uh, everything we're talking about, I can't help but think of, uh, the great British Bake Off mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, they'll bring their stuff up. I love they're that they're all doing their own work, right? Yep. They've got a thing that they're making, mm-hmm. you know, so if they're making scones or whatever, they all can do their own take on it. They can do whatever. But once it gets up to those judges, like they're actually looking at it and saying, oh, this is uh, you know, it, it looks this way. Um, 
uh, it, it feels this way. I, I understand what the thing is. Yeah. Um, so I have certain, certain standards that I'm telling you that, uh, in that understanding you either do or do not meet. Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't mean that it can't taste good. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you can't have a fantastic experience with it. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's, there's something where like both of those things are happening where there's an objectivity and a subjectivity. That's right. Cause we, you know, if you've watched the show, you've, you've seen people say things like, oh, this, you know, the texture is right, but I just don't really like these tastes. Mm-hmm. You know, the flavor in my mouth is not what I appreciate, but everything about it is, is, is good. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think about it in those terms, um, because it feels like in that there, there's a subjectivity and an objectivity that are at play and it actually is a helpful thing. So, you know, one of the kind of running things on the show is if, if you're, if your recipe that you've made is good enough to get a handshake from Paul Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. And people are just like, I wow. just call him Hollywood. <laughs> it's like, wow, I got the, got the handshake from him. Right. So if you get that handshake, it's just like a, like a, a fantastic thing. Like, oh, I've done it. I've made it. I've, I've done something good. Um, but there's always, when you have those kind of interviews and the dialogue in between, you hear the people talking about how they're going to improve. They're going to do better. They want to do more. And I know that, you know, some, somebody might be saying, okay, you're talking about scones and we're talking about painting over here. Like these are drastically different worlds and they may be, but the mechanism is still in place. And they're both things that are happening in a world that have the same philosophical and ideological underpinnings that you're talking about. So they can't be too drastic in terms of how they came about. So when I, when I think of that, and then I think of the way that like critiques have uh, been helpful or not helpful for me, it really does come down to it um, where I'm fine with the people critiquing me having an opinion about the work, liking it or not, because I want that from the people that are ultimately viewing the work. Right. Um, but more than that opinion, I really am uh, like aching for something to say, you know, actually this, this isn't doing what you think it is, mm-hmm. or it is doing it. Or, yeah. or like yeah, you yeah, said yeah. with uh, Oliver Jackson, it's doing something that you don't even know it's doing. That's right. You, you, know? want, you want some insight. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's, there's wisdom that needs to come through and that wisdom is not always based purely in subjective terms. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, when I hear you, <clears throat> we're wanting something and we want to understand the context we're in mm-hmm. helps us to understand what we're asking for. And yeah. so I think that's un, that's not differentiated. And also you want to know who you're asking because they have limitations on what they can give you. Yeah, and I think this gets to like my what I was saying earlier about master and apprentice. Yeah, you know, like you, yeah, you, like you say, we don't we don't know what we don't know. That's right. right. So if I'm coming in as a as a student as an apprentice, whatever level, um, and I'm looking for a critique, like there's there's so many things that I'm assuming as the person who is going to the person leading the critique. I'm right. assuming as the leader of that critique, you're going to be able to expose me to things I don't know yet. That's right. Well, and so here's the one of the weird Mickey's is the person who on the one hand will okay. So I love telling my students this say, Hey, what, what makes good art? What makes bad art? And I set them up because they're going to be like, well, there's no good or bad art. Really. It's, it's what you want to do. But then if I start describing their work, they start mm-hmm. asking, well, is that good or bad? <laughs> right. Yeah, well, yeah. why? So there's a, there's such a fundamental contradiction there. And the other one is they have such an, there's this drift towards saying there's no absolutes, mm-hmm. but they have such absolute faith expectation that what they did and who's in front can communicate clearly. Mm-hmm. They can just pull from the atmospheric conditions of the world in an absolute way and drop down into your point of view, transcendent meaning and value. Yeah. They just, you know, uh, 
and in the reverse, you know, you have, I, mean, I remember this, like I had a, had some teachers that were just like, we want to see things that have never been done before. You know, we really want to, and they're, they're telling you, be original, take chances, do all yeah. this stuff, right? So then I start making this new work and they're like, well, we haven't really seen anything like this before. No joke. And uh, we're uncomfortable with it because it doesn't promote them in their comfortability with what they're previously used to talking about, which was a kind of Northern California abstract expressionism. Mm -hmm. Hilarious. And so it's like, well, which is it? Where is the ground? Is it in the work? Is it in the context? It is in the observer. Um, it seems like it's a nuancey matrix of all of that, but without the willingness to have that framework, you watch everyone dance around and you see that mirrored in critical theory. So it used to be that you'd have one critic. I think Dave Hickey famously talked about this. He's like, I can't even write a critical review in a magazine without being juxtaposed against five different opinions uh -huh. in the mid nineties going in the early two thousands. And also uh, you can't say anything that um, is mean per se because that can do damage to a person's career. And I'm not saying I, I want that either. So oh, I'm yeah. just saying these are this is what kind of happened though. And so what you can see, one thing that Dave Hickey says in a you know years ago, it stuck out to me probably about 15 years ago, I guess. Like, as he said, uh, uh, at this moment, the power is on the table, and that it moved from the artist to the gallery to the critic, to the curator. And no one knows how to pick it up, but it looks like maybe the curator is. And sure enough, you started to see a celebrity around curators mm. as a kind of temporary solution to who actually had the uh, the weight in the matter. Mm -hmm. And that has been gobbled up in this deconstructionistic kind of space. And I think what's bottoms out always is dollar hmm. you know it kind of defaults back to in our you know our system is is uh where the money is you know so whether it's grant money or um you know uh collectivist committee deciding they want to affirm these values in this maker or it's you know you know uh hard sales in a for-profit gallery or you know what i mean i mean mm -hmm. in in of course we need to make money to make ends meet. And I'm not, a, obviously, you know, I'm not opposed to that, but it's just to say that the um, critical weight of discussion. So <clears throat> the critical weight of discussion is always trying to land somewhere that is grounded and supportive. And we, we just don't know how to land the plane. So even in academia, the, the way that critical discussion is drifting towards how am I going to get a job, which is really drifting towards money. Mm -hmm. Understandably so. But because we've had such an anemic framework and we've overstressed our own idiosyncrasies in particulars, uh, we don't know how to talk to each other and we don't know how to talk about new things. We know how to pick at them. Mm -hmm. We know how to prefer what we want. We know how to embellish and fetishize what we love. You know, so if you're really into a slacker aesthetic or any number, if you're really into minimalist icons, oh, you can fetishize that through talk all day. You know, we're masters at that. We can talk about meals and, right? So we can uh, overly describe and indulge in and, and um, do it to such a depth that it creates a kind of a perception of um, strength provided no one's there to challenge it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, so you invite more of the same. It becomes an echo chamber. And so that feels nice because you want to be around people that like what you like. But then you start to starve from nobody being able to actually give you 
critical <laughs> critical feedback to keep going or heaven forbid your your preferences change right yeah. so i mean i always tell my students like how many styles of dress have you gone through in your life mm-hmm. what leads you to think you're not going to do that with your art making in the future right why would that stop so is there anything underneath of that that we can rest on to accommodate the awesome ways in which we're going to change over time and our taste for things is going to change you know what i'm saying yeah definitely oh man i mean because that's the whole i'm pr- i'm here to grow but i want everything static and unchanging i mean we, we we've lost the ability in some ways to think through this well from my experience, I may be wrong. I mean, I've had yeah. that same experience too. Uh, you know, a different context. You know, because I'm not, I'm not coming out of, of the art world per se. Uh, being a designer, uh, especially, you know, I guess you might call a much more functional designer. Right. Um, not leaning towards fine arts and that. Um, but I've had the same experiences as well, even with critiques in a very different field, uh, in some ways. Um, and so I think you know, with this, the the question that remains. I think uh, on the table is um, if we can if we can point to a lot of the things that we think are detrimental, maybe negative even mm-hmm. about the current state of uh, critiques uh, or our inability to have them. Um, then how do we start to how do we start to put in place uh, good pieces that, yeah. that help us yeah, to yeah. have productive critiques that don't get at the places that we've experienced, which are leaving the room and going, I I, I wish I. I wish I knew what I could possibly explore moving forward now, but I don't because everything was just subjective. Yeah. Well, this is going to sound super snarky, but we always say no and be known. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what that came out of in some ways. I mean, it came out of critiques. I'd say like in back in the day, that's where that came out of. We'd say it's important to both know and be known. Mm-hmm. In order to do that, you have to let your guard down, but you also have to do some legwork to know who's in the room. Mm. Yeah. And that's a culture you foster so that when new folks come in, it's easier for them to enter into that that uh, comfortable yet uncomfortable environment. Yeah, I mean, um, it seems that there's a there's a huge amount of uh, vulnerability necessary yeah. within a critique. And the, the thing about that is, is uh, most of the time, I think when we hear about vulnerability within situations, we just say, "Oh, well, I'm I'm putting it all out there." But yeah, I think that yeah, yeah, yeah. that in a in a truly healthy, vulnerable situation, that vulnerability should always be met with a certain level of respect. Right, and so what, and so. Also, vulnerability doesn't mean irresponsible. Right. So it means being responsible. Mm-hmm. So to be responsible is to say, to contextualize as honestly as you can where you're at with whatever you're doing and mm-hmm. to lay out some of your expectations, I think. Um, that's on the one hand, right? That's charitable for who's in the room. On the other, it's to check your assumptions. Uh, are you a, the work should speak for itself kind of person? Mm-hmm. Are you a uh, sign and signifier kind of person where you think that the work only always works through sign signification. Like this, this points to this, this points to that. It's an accumulation of these signs. What's the, what's the meaning, you know, are you heavily conceptually bent? Um, do you hold those things as the only possible way to have a discussion? It's important to know your blind spots. So that, that's where I talk about responsibility. It's your responsibility to learn. Hmm. So, so it is, you, we need to be necessarily bringing more to a critique yes. as someone receiving critique than just questions. hundred um, percent. Well, I've, I mean, I've shared this with students before. I've had students that have come to me and said, well, I said, Oh, Hey, how's, you know, midterms going or right. something. And they'll say, well, just, I had a critique right before class. That's why I didn't really talk. It was really yeah. bad. It didn't go well. And I'll say, well, what was, what was the issue? Well, um, they said this and this and this, and it, you know, did all the things we've talked about. Um, and I said, well, what was your response? I'm like, well, I, I, it was a critique. I didn't have one. And I was like, no, that's not a critique. Yeah. Because you should be able to, you, you need to speak for your work. 
Right. You know, like if, if something is being said that you can uh, clarify Mm -hmm. that you can reframe, or if there's something being posed that you don't understand, like it it should be a conversation. Like you should bring something to it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you also have like older folks, you have to be willing to grow. You can't Mm -hmm. just be a traditionalist that says we've always done it this way. And um, so the responsibility is kind of on everybody. Yeah. Uh, We need to be deeper. You know, we just got to be deeper. So in order to be deeper, you have to be willing to concede areas of blind spots. So like being good at knowing your biases yeah. and not hiding behind those to gain power, a la one of my instructors. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm biased and I want to be, I want my status to be upheld as the best person in the room. Yeah. Um, and when you, you say bias, do you also mean preference within Preference. That? I mean okay. preference. I okay. mean, you are, you prefer uh, hippo paintings and anything else that <laughs> I mean, isn't a who hippo. Who doesn't? Yeah. Right? Anybody who else doesn't prefer the info painting <laughs> is not making good work. That's yeah. a that's a Mickey, right? Because um, good work uh, implies a kind of objective standard, and uh, which you don't ascribe to, because you're objectifying your um, you're you're rendering uh, you're absolutizing your personal preference. All the, you you know you're saying that uh, hippo painting is the standard. This is ridiculous, but you don't want to say it directly. You want it implicated and you don't want anybody to look at you. You just want them to feel the weight of your claim right. so that you are the authority. Mm-hmm. Well, it's time to uh, step down from your, you know, lust for power and um, step outside your preferences and learn to talk about things in effective ways that uh, also allow you to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the more honesty there is, the more possibility that emerges. And I think we got to go back and look at, uh, our value categories. Like, do you just think everything is random? Do you think we're progressing? Do you think that there's no objectivity? Um, do you think that everything is subjective? What do you mean by those things? Um, what are you trying to accomplish? If you say, I'm just here playing around, that's great. I love play. Mm-hmm. Don't expect world-changing um, ideology to emerge as a response to your play. Be mm-hmm. honest. Are you saying play because you want to get out from under accountability towards what you've made because you think it defines you too heavily? Mm-hmm. Maybe you should realize that maybe the work doesn't destroy your personal value. Maybe maybe it's okay to make mistakes. Maybe it's okay that uh, things are in developmental states of process and there is no utopia so that there is no um, place where it's maybe the work is never supposed to be enough. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it also then should not be under the weight of not being enough. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, how do we unpack these and dislodge these assumptions and start to formulate a better way forward? I think the posture is humility. Uh, truthful, <laughs> it sounds so bad, but it's like character formation. It's like uh, dignity, honesty, respect, inclusivity. You have to actually make a space where people are welcomed. Um, you have to be open to, uh, I mean, I've been in critiques where I thought I was kind of holding my own and then, you know, like a breath of fresh air, someone comes in and you're like, oh my gosh, they know some stuff. In fact, they know more stuff than I do. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, that happens all the time. And so you're just like, every time you got to kind of hold onto your seat and go, I'm okay. Cause you don't feel okay. You're like, you feel threatened and you're like, what am I threatened about? I get a chance to learn from somebody new. Yeah. But you know, you got to fight the process to continue to be that kind of person. You don't just, you're not just that person. It's like a continual striving. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I used to always want to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. 
Um, and the older I've gotten, the more I'm like, no, I want smarter people in the room. Yeah. I um, hope there's smarter people in the because, room. Because I mean, for night. two reasons, right? Like I, I want to learn some more stuff. I know that I don't know it all. Yeah. Um, but the other reason is, um, because if, if I'm the smartest person in the room, then everybody looks to me as like the standard for yep. what is. That's exactly and, and right. And that's, that's a load to bear. Yeah. Um, and I, I had a past student recently talk to me that, um, they said, um, that something in class stood out to them that really helped. Uh, because um, earlier on in their college career, they had been like almost paralyzed by right. being able to do work because of a lot we're talking about. Well, I don't think it can hold this weight. I don't think it can bear this burden. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I I don't know how I could even make, mm-hmm. which is a, a dangerous place we can get into. But the um, they said the thing that you said that stuck out to me is that uh, a critique should never be a personal attack mm-hmm. and we should never take it as one. Mm-hmm. So um, it should never be intended or received nope. as a personal attack. It should always be based upon the work because the work is separate from the individual. That's and right. that's so hard separate to do. Enough. It's, it's separate but not unrelated, right? Exactly. So, so you may have uh, uh, deficiencies in your know-how mm-hmm. that are embodied in the final work so that you may have to talk about your approach, your methodology, your technique, whatever, uh, needs to be tweaked in these ways. And that's, that's a little more closer to home. Right. Mm -hmm. But that has to be done with respect and care. So the, the highest value is the individuals in the room, the people in the room matter more than the art. Yeah. Um, that has to be established. The other one is selflessness, uh, has to reign true in critiques because, uh, you're not there to please me as the critiquer. You're not there to impress me with your um, your work per se. Here, here's why I would distinguish this. When the work's in the gallery or in the client's hands, then all bets are off. Mm-hmm. It's, it's whatever they want, right? But if we're in like a uh, academic or studio setting, the critique should be for the building up of the artist. Mm-hmm. That's what it should be. So you are coming in selflessly seeking to build up the artist and trusting that that enculturated aspect is not going to mean pats on the back arbitrarily and fluff, but a rigor towards understanding what they're doing, helping them understand their desires, describing it and evaluating it in ways to assess what's good about it, what works the best, towards those intentions and what else can follow. And is it, is it merely a, you know, is it X, Y, or Z? And also then being like, this is entirely new and you're, you're cutting certain ground. I, I, I don't know. And so, you know, let's grasp at it, but let's hold it with an open hand because we don't know. And I need more time. I need to have more critiques with you. I need, you know, like serving somebody means being able to say what you can't give as much as what you can. Hmm. Care, you know, uh, yeah. and, and that that really does a lot towards uh, re- not not reversing, but but breaking down this. I don't know, built in kind of the power struggle we've talked about. Exactly. This kind of militaristic yep. post World War II view of critique. That's right. right. Um, it really serves to kind of break that down, and it become more of like a dialectic conversation. Exactly. Right? So we're we're both coming in with knowledge bases. We're both coming in with understanding, with experiences, with all respect. things that make each other exactly with respect, with responsibility, with knowledge. And so what we can do is we can actually learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fun thing is, is the side effect of that sort of thing that we're discussing that may sound utopian to some folks, mm-hmm. but the stuff that we're discussing, if that relationship takes place, then the natural side effect of that, I think, will necessarily be 
the increase, uh, the uh, betterment, the 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 furthering of the work. Yeah. yeah. So the furthering of the work doesn't have to be. Uto- I love that because the furthering of the work doesn't have to be utopic. So, like for instance, um, if you have an unchecked assumption that the work can always be better, you're never going to recognize something that's satis- satisfactory in the true sense, satisfying in the true sense that it actually uh, has no significant lack. Um, now when something has no significant lack, you may or may not prefer it, but that's your preference. Right. Uh, I think there's great music that has no lack. Mm -hmm. So that's different than saying utopic perfection. Right. Uh, if you're not ready to receive that, then you're going to upload the autonomic reflexive utopic. It's not enough. Yeah, but yeah, but. And what's going to happen is you're going to critique arbitrarily over and against what works to the detriment of the work and the artist. And you're not going to rightly affirm them when they need it the most because they've done something that is clear, resonant, and solid. You, you see, so what, what's going to happen is there'll be other fir- forms of anointing like dollar, like gallerist, like patron, which are important. But... um drift a maker into a heavier place with commodification than maybe they need to think mm-hmm. like there's a dance there, you know, commodification is important, but it's not everything. Right. And so I think in uh, many areas of critique, we, we, we need to have an eye towards where things are going, but we need to be able to uh, understand uh, the value prior to that too, and fight to dig deeper into that aspect because that can only impact those other ends as much as someone wants it mm-hmm. in a positive. Um, but if you as a thinker aren't willing to really think and, and check your own assumptions and grow, um, if you think that because you have an MFA, you already did the work, mm. that's a problem. Yeah. And you see that in tenure, you see that in, in faculty that are like, I did the work. That's not the way knowledge works. Yeah. So we may not be, progressing but we are developing and changing and reason why i say we're not progress has this idea that there's a singularity or a single goal Mm. that's agreed upon and ahead of us and um i just take issue with that blind optimism Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot there's a lot of great things that are happening but it's a lot of problems that you know and, and uh um if we were really progressing certain problems wouldn't wouldn't persist the way that they do. And I know that can make well, some also, people want to challenge me, but it's but a I think there's bigger things, discussion. Uh, even in this, um, between like uh, progress and development, uh, even the way I think that we uh, as makers have a tendency to uh, view our work almost as like searches, you know, like right. where we're searching into our work, like we're, we have things. Yeah, that, inquiries, yeah. Yeah, we, we feel there's something beyond the edge of our reach and we're kind of moving into it in different exploration methods. Um, you know, one of the things that's great is if, if that's progress, then everything has to be forward. I can't make mistakes, mm-hmm. um, which my work would say otherwise. That's right. right. Because and it's full of those mistakes. Yeah, I can't make mistakes. But I still improve. That's right. I can't make mistakes. And now that's costly on my identity because that says that I'm flawed. Or, yeah. And it's like it doesn't make sense. Because so much of development has in it the ability for me to say, oops, wrong direction, yep. turn around and go back. Yep. And not lose anything. That's right. You know, but actually gain a lot from that. Yeah. You know, and so there is something I think very uh, monolithic yeah. when we when we try to say it's all it's all progress. It's all progress. Like I, I do want progress, 
but I want it to be built on more than just moving ahead. I want it to be built on a foundation. Yeah, definitely. And I think I keep going back and I'm like, just thinking there, it's like depth, depth of knowledge is required. Yeah. It's actually demanded and we can try to cultivate a life around it. You know, you can be highly intuitive and go, I don't care. I just make what I want to make. Great. You can do that. Um, and a lot of times the folks, the friends that I have that are like that, they're not worried about critiques. Just yeah. Having, just having fun with doing what they do. So that's you. Great. I mean, I have no problem with that. I think I got a big worldview. So you're well, like, but those that are thinking about critique, what are they actually thinking about? And they've got a little bit of nostalgia for it. Um, but there's this idea of depth, right? Depth of knowledge, you know, intellectual ability to perceive and depth of knowledge runs two ways. Well, it runs parallel to two other kind of character sensibilities. When you have depth of knowledge and arrogance, which I think is the temptation, then you have power play and you have jockeying for supporting yourself because you want to keep confirming to everybody else that you have depth of knowledge and you're the best. So it, it, it makes a problem in the room always because nobody can live up to that expectation all the time. No, nobody is ever able the nobody's we say it in a cliche way but in the true sense no one's perfect so people are going to scrutinize you and find flaws with you mm-hmm. and that's where like psychopaths and cultists and you know like they they're arrogant they have some knowledge and people mm-hmm. follow them until till they let them down yeah you know and then they just discard them and they bring in some new people they can manipulate like that's a cult of personality right mm-hmm. Um, that exists in academia. There's a history of that worshiping the professor kind of thing, which is horrible. Um, the other alternative, which I've seen and, and hope to try to be, uh, is, uh, depth of knowledge with a desire to grow it and humility. Um, desire to grow. It comes with being humble enough to know you like not lip service, but factually can say, I don't know. I, I, I got to grow and I am not here to power pull, you know, I'm here mm-hmm. to, you know, so like, you know, so for instance, like, what does that look like? Well, you, you get into classes where teachers are like, this is boring. I've seen this a million times. Well, who gives a rip? Yeah. I mean, I've seen the sunrise a million times. I've seen this. I've seen clouds emerge every day. Yeah. So I don't say that stuff to my students because what they're learning is new to them. Mm-hmm. It's irrelevant what I've seen in that way. Yeah, it's relevant what I've seen if I can help navigate them towards more of what they want to do by referencing the things that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And so totally different environments. Right. Also, when you are inclined towards um, boring, I've seen it before. That practice is going to make you impotent when dealing with difficult identity issues that a lot of artists are wrestling with right now. Mm -hmm. You have no objectivity to talk with them outside of your own preferences. Yeah. So you're stymied by your the, the weakness in your worldview and the in your philosophy and your approach. Your habit of approach has as uh, uh, means that at some point another power greater than you has eclipsed you and now you're inferior to it and uh, you have no way of talking. Which is happening. And so um, the other is always able to accommodate because your highest value is serving the artist. So when someone comes in and they're talking about a certain set of issues that you're unfamiliar with or uh, it's less directly related to you, uh, there are ways of artfully caring for them 
and uh, communicating both what you can offer and what you can't. And, and then even going so far as to find people that can help, which is what Linda Day did with me. She didn't, she didn't let her limitations and what I was trying to figure out keep her from uh, um, uh, sending me over to Oliver and Tom and Brenda. And the, the thing that I remember about that is I was saying I wanted to learn certain things about lighter. And mm-hmm. she said, I think the person you got to study with is Tom Monteith. I don't think I can give you what you're looking for. All that did was make me respect her more mm-hmm. because then I was like, well, whatever you don't pass off means you're very confident and I can trust it a little more. And also what it communicated, which stuck with me was she knew her colleagues, know and be known, you know, um, that, that is like, uh, I think the most persuasive thing you can do. And it, I mean, uh, persuasive in like, uh, towards what you have to offer mm-hmm. is by being honest. Yeah. It's really, it's really incredible because then you can enter into it and you can, if, if you've cultivated the til- the tools of acquiring knowledge, when you stand before something new, you can acquire knowledge about it. Mm. You see? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and, uh, but if your power is the most important thing to you and you're an academic and you're a professor and that's what you're worried about losing is your standing as a perceived authority, you, you've been done for a long time. You haven't been an authority. You've been something else. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that. I, I feel that cause I, I mean, I've had those experiences with, you know, professors the same way mm-hmm. where that has been the case, um, where you almost, you could almost write the script for the critique that day mm-hmm. because it was going to yeah. be, Oh yeah. It's like, Oh, well, here we go. We got a critique with so-and-so. So you got the person who only wants things tight. Well, right. that's not tight enough. Okay. Predictable. Yeah. Or the person who's like, you know, there's not enough, uh, you know, not enough, not enough humanistic qualities to this. That's it, right. It feels a little too uh, digital. It's like, well, yeah. And uh, then you go look at their work and lo and behold, that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. And they, what they're trying to do is get you to make their work so they can create a context that mirrors their work that they're the head of. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and, and we find this out, right? We, we've all experienced this. You go through school, you look at the professors who are doing what you want to do and you, you start to, you know, mimic what they do in some way. And then you have a, an identity crisis where mm-hmm. you're like, how, how does this work? Right. How do we kind of come into our own? Um, you know, and, and a lot of that, can be reinforced uh, if you do have these monolithic professors who are mm-hmm. just being like, just critiquing you toward their way. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think, you know, this, this idea of like, uh, you know, bring, bring knowledge to the table mm-hmm. and that knowledge includes the ability to gain more knowledge, mm-hmm. the humility that you may not know, mm-hmm. but then also couple that with uh, critiques only happen well uh, when you know the person you're critiquing to mm-hmm. some level. That's right. And that doesn't mean that, it only is like, oh, you have to have years of a relationship before you can right, critique somebody. Right. No. But it is that you you understand that the the thing behind that painting, that sculpture, that design is a human. Yeah, a with, person. with with situational desires as they de- dependent upon where they're at in their life and right, like that's a moment they're at, that's a place that they're at. And uh I mean, so when you're asking for a critique, know what you're asking. I mean, whenever someone says, like in drawing studio, what an open drawing studio I run, they'll say, never met me before. They have no idea who I am. And they say, yeah. what do you think? And they got a little doodle in the sketch pad. I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like gentle enough and respectful enough to, to be humble and take them at their word and just compensate for what they're unaware of by asking the question. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a part of me is like, do you know 
what you're asking. Mm. What do you do with someone who's seen, you know, endless drawings? Like, Mm -hmm. what are you asking me to prioritize? Because if you're asking me to like it, I don't. But that's not because the drawing's not valid. I just have tasted a lot of drawings. You know, so if you're asking me to esteem you, I, I don't know if I can do that if I don't like what you're doing, if that's what you're asking me. Right. But if you come to me and say, I struggle with middle value hmm. and um, tend to, you know, you know, tend, tend to uh, struggle with halftones or, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, my proportions tend to be skewed the lower half of my drawing. I'm always making the torso too tall and, I don't know. I mean, if you have some kind of thing you're after and you say, what do you think about that in this drawing? I can give you an answer. And then if you say, well, what can I do to improve that? I can give you an answer, right? If you're a artist coming to pursue a show with, uh, with me and you say, here's my work, here's my statement. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the work? I can look at it and give you feedback in general and say, you know, and I've done it and some people have changed their work and they're doing a lot better now or whatever. But, um, you know, there can be a discussion there because the context situates me to understand that this is a part of the process, right? So understanding the context helps to frame the critique. You see what I'm saying? Um, When that's all unspecified by the artist um, and then they've got a really vague notion of what an artist is, you seem like a brick because they're so amorphous and so foggy about everything. You just seem too solid. Mm -hmm. But we need more solidity. You know, we just need more concrete dialogue and expressions. We've been uh, um, drifting so hard that uh, in some ways, personal identity in a Warholian extension is is the solidest ground right now. But it also means that uh, it's difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so um, uh, we don't want to lose the importance of people's identity, but we also don't want to make that same person anemic because they have no way forward in what they're thinking about, you know, and what they're making and what it, what it's, uh, um, impact is on other people. And so that's the whole utopic thing is there's uppercase utopia. And then maybe there's like lowercase making it better. Mm -hmm. And you also need to know how to say, this is, this is, this is pretty great. You can't throw around pretty great personally and not mean it because it loses its value. So that comes back to being truthful as much as you can. Mm. Hey, I, I'm have I got a stomach did it egg today. I'm tired. Um, I'm a little worn out and uh, had a rough night last night. So I don't trust my judgment as much today. Do you still want to hear from me? I'll try my best. Or hey, you know what? Uh, today I can't give it to you. I, I'm just uh, I want to be responsible with my words, and I respect you. And uh, it's been it's been a rough go. I'm tired. Right. Um, hey, I just looked at thirty different people's work. So, um, or, you know, one that I do all the time is in certain, certain environments, I'll I'll say like, let's say someone has an orange painting. I'm already going to have a latent gravitational bias. I just love the color orange. Mm -hmm. This is just an example. So if I really think that my advice is skewed by that preference, that bias, I'll say it, I'll say, Hey, listen, take this with an extra measure or an extra grain of salt, because I just happen to love this color so much that I can't w- resist it. Mm-hmm. So I'm already influenced heavily by the choice you made beyond any kind of formal analysis and objective reading of the work. 
in support of you. So I'm going to do my best, but please know that it might be a little bit charged disproportionately by my preferences. Cool. That's their choice. Do they want to take it or not? You, yeah. you see what I'm saying? I mm-hmm. mean, it just helps to be, that's the authentic piece. That's what, when you're looking for, you're like, you're looking for a real person. You're looking for real people. That's the humanizing um, endeavor. And by the way, when you look at art and you talk about it, that's the way art in many ways humanizes you. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's the uh, interactive mutuality that's at play that we talk about generate, you know, it being generative or whatever. It's, it's those effects, the way that they're expressed can shape people. And it comes through the interaction of the community and the work and the discussion. It actually occurs powerfully. Um, or we blunt it out with generalities and vague vagueness and fog and nothing transacts and everybody comes to the dinner table to eat and they leave uh, with nothing in their stomachs. So they, they've gone through the process of having a dinner, but they've never been satiated. So they know that they should have been, but they didn't get it and they don't know why. And so they come back and smell the same meal again, stare at it, talk about it, but they don't consume it. They don't, they don't, it, they're not situated to actually interact with it. You know what I mean? It's like they don't know how to, it's like sitting in front of a meal not having a utensils. You just, you, you can't, you can't eat it. Um, and, uh, but you think that maybe you are, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. you're still hungry. So why? It's worth asking, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know if this kind of leads into it, but the other thing is, I think we've been talking a lot about the, the receiving of critique um, and how that could be there. And we've, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, leading them as well in terms of like um, making sure that you understand they're human and that there's respect and uh, things like that. But, um, you know, I think a lot of times there's an expectation in a course uh, possibly, and I, and I felt this coming out of uh, grad school, like very early after master's work, uh, having a class and then being like, okay, I need to critique their work. But I, I didn't necessarily have the tools for it. I didn't right. necessarily understand because uh, being a part of a critique and receiving it mm-hmm. and then having to transition to someone who's leading one, mm-hmm. that's a that's a tough transition. Oh, yeah. Um, and so a lot of the times I think some of this stuff that um, some of the stuff that we've been talking about might in its best case, be just a side effect of people being ignorant and not understanding who totally. to ask or how to do it. Like Totally. Because you, you don't want to be the first-year teacher who's like checking out the book from the library that says, you know, seven steps to critique. Right, you know, right. You, no, you want to you want to feel like you you have an authority yeah. in your classroom. That's right. Um, and so it was, I know for me, it was, it was never a, uh, it, it always came implicitly. That's like right. by listening to other critiques and yeah. things like that. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and that's a tough one because I think that's a whole institutional critique for me, meaning yeah. there's a lack of, there's an erosion of authority. Therefore, there's an erosion of teaching. There's also the assumption that there is not transferable knowledge. It's not an assumption that's stated. It's it's deeply felt though. And so everything is per, transfer of personal preference knowledge uh, in support of yourself rather than the support of some larger common good. Now that might be changing a little bit. You may be having more of a collectivist move in a lot of ways. So we'll see what that does to education. But the idea of obtaining knowledge has, has been really, um, it's more like, um, it's more like knowledge about certain tech technologies that mm-hmm. are latest and greatest and keep your identity on the forefront of where humans are headed. So it's still sort of secretly utopic. Um, but in the reverse, you know, what I experienced was um, immersive critiques, but also then um, teaching 
uh, graduate in undergraduate teaching uh, where you're a TA. So you're critiquing, you're making, and then you're teaching. Mm-hmm. And you're being developed holistically to do all of that so that it's fully integrated, which is right. what happened with me. And then when I got in, you know, you get in grad school. Like, I mean, I think I was an undergrad and Tom Monteith had turned over a critique to me and let me do it. So I was in, I've always been providentially in situations where earlier than the academic setting, I had teachers that turned over the keys and let me do things and other people too. So I had some great, I had, I had a, some pretty awesome peers in my uh, little core uh, of makers uh, at the time. And, uh, you know, so even with me, I have my students right away uh, introduce, they, they, so like second day of class, they're critiquing each other's homework one-on-one mm-hmm. and then they're writing out, they have to write out some facts and then they, they, I put them in a position to talk to everybody else to start the process of just standing in front of people talking. Like, you, you know, the academic environment we teach in is very different than where I was trained in. I had hours and hours per session to really, really marinate, whereas we're not afforded that here. Yeah. So there are differences to overcome, but... Um, but there also is something about being immersed and observing. Mm-hmm. So then you step out of the game and then you evaluate how you played. You know, that's the mentoring role. Mm-hmm. It's in game, watch me as I play. Now you step in and try it. Now let's go talk about it. Now let's go back in and put it into use again. But also the way you're going to internalize this is when you're making as well. And so you're seeing the myriad of application play itself out. And uh, so you're being immersed in it. Then you're talking about it. Then you're making uh, with these ideas in mind and you're curious about the, the the shortcomings of yourself but also the process and that becomes a delight so one of the things that i wanted to say in all this is delight or joy is uh often lost at the expense of this ambiguity and this lack of clarity and understanding oh yeah is people lose the ability to have fun so they they lose the joy of making it becomes placed with a bitter iron ironic bent mm-hmm. so it's like you know, in the fine art, contemporary art, maybe studio art, last several years, last decade, a lot of focus on irony and cynicism, you know, laughing at the expense of others or imagined others, you know? Yeah. And so uh, there's no real joy in that. Um, it, it doesn't cultivate joy. It cultivates a demand for more cynicism. And so then we talk cynically and provided everybody in the room agrees on the uh, the range of uh, language we're going to use to be cynical or the way we're going to contextualize our cynicism, then uh, we're promoting ourselves and we're in the know. Mm -hmm. And this assumed other who's not in the room is not in the know, unless that other is in the room. And then they're isolated, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's in it. I've seen it so many times. And so um, an irony is such a safe place to hide behind because you can step out in front of it, as I've said in the past, or you can just buffer yourself and discount what you said is just being ironic it it, it's uh you know so coming on the heels of irony you've got this strong reaction of sincerity in in many folks and so uh they're almost so sincere there's no room for laughter and Mm -hmm. so joy has been crushed from both sides and i know joy can make someone cringe because you think of christmas in this kind of cheap way but i mean like a deep uh qualitative state uh that is you know that, that really practices delighting in the yeah. um, ingratitude for the the gifts that we do have, you know, just like real gratitude because nothing is owed to us. 
Well, I think like some of this, a lot of folks will probably have some sort of touch point with this because if we think about our standard kind of like undergrad or graduate critique feel and the way that you felt going into that, you know, there, there was always, no matter how prepared you felt for it, there was always a somewhat sense of dread, you know, yep, because it was, it right. was a taxing thing. Exactly. You know, um, but weigh that against uh, the interaction you might have in the studio with your cohort mm-hmm. of students in grad school, right? You were getting a lot of the same things. You were getting feedback, push and pull. It was in a very different dynamic. And you mm-hmm. probably didn't dread going into your studio with your studio yeah. mates um, and your cohort, uh, the people that are in your cohort. And I had this experience um, when when I was in master's work and I was working with a group of graduate students and we were making a bunch of stuff. We were doing things and we had our individual projects. Um, a lot of the things that we're talking about as being productive parts of critique were a part of that. Mm-hmm. We were bringing our knowledge. We were searching for something. Yep. Uh, we were coming in with respect and humility that we needed to know more. Yep. Um, and we were excited to do it. And honestly, looking back, those are probably the most productive critiques I had, but I didn't view them as that. They weren't contextualized that way. Right. Because I was just viewing them as this kind of... Um, oh, no, there's a, there's a power structure in place in a critique yep. and I just have to be told and I yep. can't bring questions to the table and I don't have any viewpoint. I just kind of put it at the feet of the, uh, the dictator and just mm-hmm. say, please allow me to yep. stay another week. Yep. Um, you know, and so there's a, a, I think what you're talking about with enjoyment or, or with joy, like I, I felt that enjoyment when I was going through what now I understand to be much more like a critique with my cohort, uh, that I was in grad school with. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's strange, you know, we might hear it as kind of a cheesy thing, yeah. but I think that we've experienced it. If we really look back if and you, yeah, if you look think at about it, it, that's right. Like discovery brings joy because it oh, brings yeah. that aha about where you're like, whoa. And I think that's part of, that's one of the best parts of, of being human is it reminds you both of your limitations and potential. And it also reminds you of the world around yourself and the way in which you kind of correspond to that world. And in, a, in the best possible way, just that is something that seems to be very, very intrinsic to, you know, what humans are, mm-hmm. um, that we're contingent and uh, subject to, um, but also capable of having these moments of solving or coming to um, some new state where a piece of the equation or the puzzle fits together and it's it's resonant. It, it's melodious. It's uh, uh, in, it's uh, mystifying, engaging. You know, does these things, and if um, it's delightful, you know, um, you know whether it's in a, in a gallery, in a museum, in a home, uh, you know, a layout in a. I mean, I love getting books. You know, I just love. Yeah. You know, um, whatever it is, uh, if it that magic can get wore out by other things, but, um, it doesn't change that it's there and that that's the best possible case for us Mm. and that we should be orienting our cultural environments around, uh, that aspect a lot more than we do, you know, that we should really try to, uh, take a step back and see how am I cultivating that for my students, for myself and my studio practice with my peers down the street. I mean, we've tried to do it with Chaco art space. I mean, I certainly have been Grinding at that, that, that's what we started in the beginning. That's what I, you know, tried to do right away. Yeah. Um, more than anything else. And uh, it's a work. It's not easy, but um, it's effective, though. People will change. Um, and maybe those changes help them be more who, who they are and 
take away some anxieties and uh, replace it with joy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like a good meal. I mean, nobody nobody snickers at a serious chef. No. So let's just take the seriousness of a chef and the seriousness of the meal. When you're on the receiving end of it, what is there? It's just joy, man. Like when it's good, you're like, all you do is talk about it and with reference to how good it is. Yeah. So everybody understands it. We just have such uh, baggage coming into fine art that uh, such cynicism and skeptical, you know. And also, by the way, I always tell my students this. You should never settle for someone being a jerk to you as a sign of weightiness in a critique Mm. in place of the weight of the truth about your work. Yeah. So if there's a problem, let that come through proportionate to the problem as stated, not as a matter of preference, but as a matter of fact in reference to that work. And if, you know, if you're listening and you, you, you know, sign up for a critique with us, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean, because it's without a particular piece, we can't really see what this means at play. You got to actually do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is a difference because oh, then yeah. also then it allows you to align with the weight of what's working well, mm-hmm. as opposed to an arbitrary posture of jerkiness that has its trace traces back to, um, you know, the, uh, the drill instructor vibe you know, and, uh, the power assertion and these other things that are weak in comparison to whatever authority is there in knowledgeable beings talking about the world that is in ways that are deeply meaningful to each other mm-hmm. because we live in a meaningful world. You know, we, we live in a world that is rich. Yeah. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be striving to make sure it doesn't go away. Right. That's you the truth. I mean? so. Well, so I think, you know, as a, is a point maybe the last little bit we can do today to wrap up almost as like a like a closing laundry list of sorts. Um, with everything we talked about, um, maybe just kind of bounce back and forth with this a little bit, Ryan. Um, if we just have some uh, like a quick checklist of if you're a maker and you're looking for like this kind of meaningful critique that actually spurs you on, uh, like we've been discussing, if you're that that maker listening. Um, what might be a list of things that we might put together to say these would might be some good small practices? Almost, you know, going back to the episode we did about professional practice. So, like, how does how does prepping for a critique how does it weed itself back into professional practice? Because I'd I'd start off going with something that we mentioned in an earlier episode, which is in line with what you were saying about getting more knowledge. Is you know, think within uh, prep for a critique uh, as part of your professional practice, whatever. Find some find some books to read on things. Yeah, I mean, so you know, I think you should be reading um, preemptive to. I just think a healthy diet on uh, at your own measure. You know, uh, stay sharp, keep yeah. your mind sharp. <clears throat> you know, watch some videos maybe too. I guess. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of uh, books right now. My recall is bad. Um, Maybe we can like tag some books, yeah. Like on the end of this podcast mm-hmm. in the the yeah, below. We can, we'll put some in the uh, description. Uh, yeah, I think there's a ton out there, and that's that's both good and bad. But, um, but if you read books, talk with someone. Try to get someone to read with you. Yeah, don't do it by yourself because Definitely. you need to talk about it. I think I think it sticks better when you talk. But uh, so th- there's the that act of cultivation. Um, the other is go into situations knowing what your actions are. Mm. What do you, so, um, 
come into the situation responsible to what your expectations are. What am I coming into this for? Yeah. Whether you're the artist or the, or the critiquer or vice versa. Uh, what are my actions? What, what have I done? What have I been doing? Why am I doing it? Whatever that is, to whatever extent, come in really clear on that. Practice getting clear on that. And then don't control the outcome of the room. Mm-hmm. Rest in what you came in with and communicate as honestly as you can with reference to the room. Yeah. So um, don't panic because you think you're going to lose your status when a question is asked. Don't hedge your bets. Be as honest as you can by being clear before you get there. So yeah, that was, way, that's your reference point for what follows in discussion. Yeah, I mean, similarly, I was going to say, um, actually know your work. Because yeah. I know there have been times I've gone on a critique where um, I've been asked a question, and I'm like, well, I don't know. And in retrospect, it felt very silly because it was a basic question about my work, and I yep. just didn't actually understand what my work was. That's right. You know, and, and, and it's okay to not know your work, totally. but then you have to just you have to come in and say, as a contextualizer, my action for this critique, I'm coming into this saying, uh, part of where I'm at is I less understand what I'm doing in a, in a very honest way, which means then when people start talking, you don't start justifying. Because if you start justifying yourself, what you're really saying is I have some unspoken expectation that's not being met. Right. Yeah, and I was going to say like with that, even even if understanding your work means that uh, largely you did this because you'd like a certain style that something else is doing and you, you're just, you're kind of mimicking some things. You know, like whatever yeah. level of honesty you need yeah. to yeah, actually yeah. know your work and what's I, happening. Yeah, I always tell people looking is free mm-hmm. and you can look anywhere and everywhere in your life. So one thing I try to do is, and I, I, I it's real simple, but I, I try to start with, I try to, I put, I like on one ditch, I don't like in the other. Mm-hmm. And in the center, I have the question, what is the work doing? Or what is that X, Y, or Z doing? Yeah. So for instance, yesterday we were in class talking about critiques for the first time and someone had dragged a bright yellow leaf into a gray floor. So everybody else is, you know, I'm always looking around and my eyes are wandering. That's just part of my practice, right? So I keep noticing how dazzling this yellow was against the gray floor and you can see how the yellow is making the floor warmer and muting or transmuting the color to a a muted warm gray green mm-hmm. so you know first day second day of class we're talking about critiques critiques and i said hey you need to become better lookers more observant and in in order to really become better observers you can't be uh you can't you got to try to eliminate confirmation bias you can't just look for what you like Mm -hmm. you got to practice looking to look with the expectation that the world is always doing something and it's not neutral and so i said for instance come over here and and i said you know anybody notice this leaf and they're like no i was like well it's pretty pretty wonderful color here right and they're like yeah i was like watch what it's doing to the floor and they're like i don't see anything i was like well look at look at the floor it's warmer around the yellow and it's greenish right so watch what happens when i pick it up and take it away and it was like taking a light away from the ground all of a sudden the green was gone it cooled down and it seemed dull yeah it, it, the ground was less rich because it begs to be complimented complimented with with color so then i put it back and it's like and then people started giggling like oh crap i see it i was like right I was like, you didn't notice that. What else are you not noticing? Because it's everywhere. Right. And so the practice of undoing our bias preferences towards the things we like in a moment and giving a little bit of space to the assumption that the world is effective and ongoing 
and always happening and not neutral. Mm-hmm. And there's always phenomena to observe. And if you start with what is it doing as a visual effect, as a phenomenological effect, as a, a physical effect, whatever, visual, uh, you're going to find that there's something there. Mm-hmm. And that engagement is free and everywhere. Look at shadows, look at the color in shadows, look at texture, describe it to yourself. What is it doing? How does it differ? What changes when I, if you just start doing that, you will cultivate a core that is a highly observant and a highly observant individual is going to be better at critiquing and better at making. There's no way around it. Yeah. It's at the core of any kind of making. Yeah. And where I was going to go is, you know, coming right off of that. Um, Kind of the last big thing I have on, on the list of stuff I'd say people can do to better prepare for critiques would be, um, actually try to try to cultivate a curiosity. Yeah. That, like you're talking about, um, you know, and what that means uh, functionally in most of our lives is that uh, you should start checking yourself on answers and tell yourself, uh, do I just want to say this as a reactive thing or have I asked enough questions to give a good answer? Because uh, one of the things that in my class, my students would tell, um, would say, oh, this is something that's become almost cliche from him is uh, we don't have problems with answers. We have problems with bad questions. Mm hmm. So we, I don't care what your answer is if you haven't asked a good enough question yet. Yeah. And so, and that comes from curiosity. And yeah. The fact good we, questions come from being curious. Bad questions come from defending some unstated assumption you're not willing to put out there yeah. uh, because you want to be right. Yeah. Bad questions are precursors to a preconceived answer. That's right. I mean, that's, that's what Hedging it is your already. Bets. It is. Yeah. And so if we can have good questions and questions. Sonic the hedge better. <laughs> So if we if we can have good questions that we're actually like wanting answers to, yeah, then I think we're going somewhere. But I think a lot of the times, if we're very honest with ourselves, when we ask questions, we're assuming an answer or expecting or desiring an answer, and we don't actually we're not actually asking a question. We're just setting someone up for a conversation we want to have. Yeah, maybe this is this is a little tangential, but jargon. So yeah. you know, I think there's real place for jargon. Actually, jargon. Jargon may be pedantic and necessary at really deepening a dis- describing of something or mm-hmm. a, a deepening of your mental nimbleness to, to understand a very, very nuanced and complex set of ideas. And so you never want to discount vocabulary um, because it gets a little jargony. But hollow jargon mm. that just sounds like it's something um, is a problem. And so don't. I just think it's, I encourage my students against resist trying to sound smart. Yeah. Just, just chances are you're smarter just by being sincerely engaged than trying to sound artsy. So, you know, it's like you see a change where people start to say, I like a lot more. Well, you know, it's like, it's like, I like, it's like, you know, sort of, and they change their tone. I don't know. It's like, it's a pseudo Warhol. I'm in the know, not in the know. Mm, I know more than you, but I'm talking out of an ironic, stance of I don't know curiosity tone like I don't know and it's an art school thing and anybody's been in art school sees it happen and at the end of the day do do whatever you want to do of course I'm not going to lose sleep over it I'm just one person who am I Mm -hmm. you know I mean you know we're doing our own podcast you either (laughs) listen or you don't but um I don't know I, I don't see much lasting value in practicing appropriating being something rather than actually being it. Oh, you're like a real artist. You're a real artist. Mm. Andy Warhol. Yeah. Just watch Jean-Michel Basquiat <laughs> with, with um, made by Julian Schnabel. And that's my fam- favorite Andy Warhol line. So you're good. like a real painter. 
<laughs> I couldn't teach you anything. <laughs> You're a real artist. So good. It's so good. It's so addicting too. I just want to be David Bowie. I mean, how amazing art imitating David Bowie as Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. So good. I feel like that's like the only Halloween costume for like the rest of my life that will ever be anything. Yeah. I did the dude one year and then somebody be like, oh, are you Andy Warhol? No, no, no. I'm David Bowie as Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. Yeah. Bowie. <laughs> Bowie. He's the only one that gets to talk like that. Oh, yeah. David Bowie stands alone. Everybody else, though, quit quit, quit doing do it. it. Stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, You're more fair. interesting without appropriating somebody else. Exactly. I mean, I, I have the same thing I run to as students where I'll have them take a topic that they've heard about for the first time, they'll get into pairs, groups, whatever, and they'll start doing some research. And then we'll, I'll say, give me two sentences to describe, to tell me what this is, you know, define it. And they come back and they say this stuff and then everybody gets finished. And I look at them, I go, okay, what's that mean? And everybody's like, I don't know. Like, yeah. Well, you just gave me all these words. Yeah. yeah you just said words. I mean, like, but words, oh, words. I was like, it's great. You just gave me like vocabulary vomit yeah. uh, in the middle of class. And, and then yeah. words as to, words as fashion. It is. And, yeah. you know, you, you put them on, you wear them, and it doesn't yeah. matter. Words as emojis. In, in 15 minutes, you'll forget they were there and something is right. happening. But, you know, at, at the end of uh, those things, every once in a while, you get the one student who says, oh, it means this. And yeah. they just pop it out in the most, like, mundane yep. language. And people are like, oh, that makes total sense. It's yep. like, yeah, because they're communicating. And there's the aha moment. Yeah. See, that's where you just learn something new from someone else. And you're like, because you're capable Yes. But you need to have the forward tension to allow for problems to emerge so you can learn about them. And and that right there, I think, is a fantastic, uh, if we were to kind of culminate this episode and the idea of critique into a sentence, I think we have a really good one right there to kind of end it on. I couldn't say it again, so don't ask. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, here's, here's the good news. If you need to hear it again, just, uh, just rewind a little bit. <laughs> just play it again. <laughs> All right. Righty. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a, a fantastic conversation. It's really yeah. uh been helpful for me just as uh, somebody to kind of, because I think critique is one of those things within uh, like art culture yeah. that we're like, oh yeah, you, you know, you know what it is. Right. But we, we usually don't uh, verbalize it in yeah. a very precise way. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, I think there's definitely more in the historical facts and certain players and things like that. And so, you know, we may come back and do a deep dive at some point, you know, maybe, maybe that'll be a series yeah. to think about. So uh, maybe this is just a good broad contextualizer, give us some overview and and, uh, you know, if, I think if folks, I, I definitely, you know, we, we'd like to move into, you know, uh, doing mentorships and that kind of thing at some point. And, um, so, you know, if some of this resonates with you and you're interested in, in having discussions or, um, you know, let us know, email us, yeah, please do. um, you know, as always, uh, you can find us at info at shockoartspace.com and just put in there, you know, reference Shaco art speak mm-hmm. and, uh, we'll definitely get your message and we'd love to hear what you're thinking about, you know, if you have questions or follow-ups or whatever, um, or you can DM us. That's right. Hit us up on Instagram. (laughs) On the gram. Yeah. Gram Tam. (laughs) And as always, uh, very appreciative, very grateful of our audience. So thank you all so much for listening. You're fantastic. We'll check you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.